Well, if we could, with the Lord's help and the Lord's enabling this evening, if we could turn back to that portion of scripture that we read, the book of Psalms, Psalm 81. Psalm 81, I want to walk through the whole psalm, but we'll just read again uh, the first three verses. <coughs> psalm 81 from the beginning. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. As you know, uh, the schools will close this Friday for uh, the Easter holidays and both the children and the teachers, they will get two weeks off to relax and enjoy themselves, uh, lucky for some. Uh, but I'm sure that you all know that the word holiday originally came from, or we, it comes from the old English word, holy day. And the holy days, they were, I suppose you could say, feast days that were set apart to worship the Lord and give thanks to him for his faithfulness towards us. And you know, when we consider the Jews as a people, uh, they had many holidays. They had many holy days. They had many feast days. They had Sabbaths and new moons, feasts and festivals. Uh, especially the, the annual feasts which the Jews would go on pilgrimage all the way up to Jerusalem. That's when they would sing the, the songs of ascents, when they're going up to the feasts of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And I say all this about the feasts because Psalm 81 was a psalm which was originally used to call the Lord's people together in order to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles is sometimes called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents. And it was a biblical Jewish holiday. It was a holy day. In fact, it was a holy week. It was eight days long. And it says actually back in the book of Leviticus that the Lord appointed the Feast of Tabernacles to be celebrated at a, a certain time of year. And the Lord says in Leviticus chapter 23, he says, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord, which is around, which is the fifteenth day of the seventh month. That's around... September, October time, you could say. Now, going by our calendar. And the Lord said, On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. So that's this ingathering of the Lord's people, where they would gather in Jerusalem, and there would be worship, and God's law would be read before the people. And the Lord says, You shall do no work on it, for on seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no work on it. And what we see is that the emphasis of not working, it shows that the Feast of Tabernacles was a holy day. Holy days. It was a holiday. And it was set apart and distinct from other days. But the purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles, it was to commemorate and to celebrate the Exodus <coughs> from slavery in Egypt. That's what we're singing about in, in Psalm 105. Where the Israelites, they were freed from the hand of uh, the mighty Pharaoh and they were led by Moses through the Red Sea and into the wilderness towards the promised land. 
And unbeknown to them, uh, their wilderness journey was going to take them 40 years. But during that 40-year period, the, the children of Israel, they moved, as you know, from place to place. And as they moved, they lived in tents. They lived in this temporary accommodation. They were like refugees. And their camps, I suppose they would have been very similar to the ones that we see on the news now, with all these people moving out of Africa. And it's estimated that the number of Israelites which, which left Egypt, they say it was about 2.4 million, which is just under half the population of Scotland today. And this is what the Feast of Tabernacles commemorated, that the children of Israel, they were brought out of Egypt into the wilderness to dwell in tents <coughs> and in tabernacles. And these tents, they were actually called sukkahs. That's what they were called, sukkahs. It's the Hebrew word for a tent. And that's what they, the, the Jews call it. They call it the Feast of Sukkoth. And during this holiday feast of tabernacles, in order to commemorate the Exodus, the Jews, they, they still to this day, they go out or they go to this campsite with all these tents. And they go out of their cities or their towns and they dwell in these Suckers, and they eat the feast and some of them they sleep there for uh, the week-long festival and as the Jews they say themselves that the purpose of the feast of tabernacles it's to remember the Lord's goodness to them throughout the wilderness journey and it the purpose of remembering the feast of tabernacles it's to reaffirm their trust in the providential care of God how he looked after them throughout their wilderness journey and so the Feast of Tabernacles, it was a joyous occasion. It was often being described by the Jews as this, this festival of rejoicing. And it's a festival during which they renewed their commitment to the Lord. The Feast of Tabernacles is, what you could say, a happy holiday. And this psalm, Psalm 81, I want us to call it a holiday hymn. A holiday hymn. Psalm 81 is... A holiday hymn that was originally used to call the Lord's people together in order to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And as I said, I just want to walk through this holiday hymn and consider it uh, this evening under four headings. Four headings, the call to the people, the covenant with the people, the commandment for the people and the commitment of the people. The call to the people, the covenant to the people the commandment for the people and the commitment of the people. So if we look firstly at the call to the people. The call to the people. It says in verse 1, the psalmist says, Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine. The sweet lyre with the harp. Below the trumpet. At the new moon. At the full moon. On our feast day. And what we ought to see from these opening verses is that there is this great call to the people to come and worship the Lord. There's this great call that's gone out to all of the Lord's people to come and sing a joyful song to the Lord. And this call to the Lord's people, it's, it's expressed by all these imperatives that are used. Because in the first three verses, there are five imperatives used. And their emphasis is to come. And worship the Lord. Because he says that we are urged to, to sing aloud. Shout for joy. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine. And blow the horn. Or blow the trumpet. 
There's this great call that goes out for all of the Lord's people to come and worship the Lord, to come together and worship. They were to come to the feast and worship the Lord in the spirit of thanksgiving. In fact, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, it was often called by the Jews this season of rejoicing. The Feast of Tabernacles or Booths or Sukkoth, it was a joyous occasion because it celebrated and commemorated the exodus from Egypt. It celebrated and commemorated the Lord's great act of redemption in bringing the children of Israel out of slavery and bondage and on towards the promised land. And so this holiday hymn, it opens with this great call for the Lord's people to come and praise the Lord for his salvation. And they have great reason to praise the Lord because he has set his people free from the oppression and the tyranny of Pharaoh and the years that were spent in chains and in bondage. They have this great reason to, to celebrate and to commemorate the exodus from Egypt. And you know, it's no wonder that the psalmist, he encourages the Lord's people to gather together and he says, says to them, sing aloud, shout for joy, raise a song, sound the tambourine, blow the horn. He says, make a joyful noise to the Lord for his salvation. And you know, is that not what we were singing in our opening item of praise in Psalm 95? The psalmist was calling all of us tonight and he's inviting us he invited us to come and worship the Lord because of his wonderful salvation. That's why we've come here. To worship the Lord because of his wonderful salvation. And he said to us, oh come, let us sing to the Lord. Come, let us everyone a joyful noise make to the rock of our salvation. And you know, this call to worship, it should, it should remind us that we have a good reason to rejoice. We have good reasons to make a joyful noise to the Lord because he's the rock of our salvation. He's redeemed us from slavery to sin. He's purchased us by his blood. He has made us new by his, his grace. We are, and he's, he's keeping us by his own power. My friend, we have good reasons to come here tonight and sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. And our rejoicing in the Lord's salvation it should just flow out of us. It should flow out of us in our worship of him. Not because of who we are, but solely because of who he is and what he has done on our behalf. You know, I can't understand any Christian who doesn't want to sing in church. We might say that we're a bad singer, but singing is the expression of our heart and our soul. And we're called, as the psalmist was saying, we're called to, to sing aloud to the Lord. We're called to make a joyful noise. We're called to praise and rejoice in the Lord. The, the Lord doesn't say that if we can't sing, we shouldn't sing. No, he says, let us sing psalms to him with grace and make a joyful noise. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. He's calling the Lord's people to sing praises and rejoice. Shout aloud. Shout for joy, raise a song, sound the tambourine, blow the trumpet, he says. And then, you know, the last imperative, it's really interesting, in verse 3, where he says, blow the trumpet. You see in verse 3, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. Literally, it's blow the horn. 
And the horn which was blown was called a shofar. Shofar. I'm sorry about all these Jewish terms tonight, but I, find, I found this so interesting. And so if I get excited, well, don't mind me. But this shofar, it was made of, it was the horn of either a ram or an ox or a, a bull. It was the horn of an animal. And the shofar, it was blown to mark the beginning of the Jewish New Year, which the Jews call Rosh Hashanah. So the shofar was blown on this day called Rosh Hashanah. Because the Jewish New Year, it would take place, as it says in verse 3, at the new moon, the time of the new moon in the month Tishiri, which was around September. So we're in the September-October time. And the date, it changes every year because the Jews, they follow, they follow the lunar calendar. Their months begin with uh, the new moons. And why this is important to the Feast of Tabernacles is because the Jewish New Year was this two-day celebration which took place at the beginning of a new moon. And then from one new moon to the next, which is about a month, there would be this month of celebrating the Lord's salvation. And that month, it would conclude with the Feast of Tabernacles. And so when the shofar was blown at the beginning of the new year, the new moon, it marked the beginning of this new month, this month-long celebration of God's salvation. You know how, if you research into it, what I find so interesting is how all these Jewish festivals, they all fit together. Because the shofar was blown on the first day of the new year, New Year's Day. Ten days in, it's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That's the one day in the year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the people of God. And you know, having studied this, uh, I think it'll be a good thing for us. We'll study all the feasts at some point and see their significance to the New Testament and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Because the significance of blowing the horn or this shofar, it was blown over 30 times on the morning of the Jewish New Year. And according to Judaism, the Jewish New Year, this is interesting, it was the traditional anniversary of the creation of Adam and Eve. And so the Jews, they said that the celebration of New Year, Rosh Hashanah, at the beginning of the new moon, and the celebration of the, the Feast of Tabernacles at the end of the month, they called it like, they said it was like the, the coronation of a king. This month-long holiday celebration. There was this long festival, this long holiday of worship to the Lord, <laughs> celebrating at the beginning, his great act of creation in Adam and Eve and all the world. And then at the end, his act of redemption, bringing them out of Egypt. And it's wonderful to see that the Lord's people, they were all called together to praise the Lord and to remember at the beginning of a new year, remember the Lord's great act of creation. And then at the end of the celebration, his great act of redemption. And you know, we are still being called by the Lord to praise him and to exalt him as our creator and our redeemer. And the psalmist says that we are to, as he says here, sing aloud, shout for joy, raise a song, sound the tambourine, blow the horn in praise of our creator and redeemer. There's so much in it. And so, first of all, we see the call to the people. But secondly, we see the covenant with the people. 
the covenant with the people. Look at verse 4. He says, For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Selah. And so after this call to come and worship the Lord at the Feast of Tabernacles, after the call had gone out, we see in these verses, verses 4 to 7, we see as to why this call to come and celebrate at the Feast of Tabernacles went out. Because he says, it is a statute for Israel, a rule for the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph. Which means that the Feast of Tabernacles, it wasn't something that was just part of the Jewish social calendar. It wasn't something that they had made up. This was, as we read in Leviticus 23, it was ordained by God. And as it says in verses 4 and 5, it was a statute for Israel. It was a law given by the God of Jacob. It was decreed in Joseph. And the words that are used here, depending on which Bible version you're using, the words statute, law, decree, testimony, rule, all of these words, they express the covenant which the Lord made with his people. And they explain to us why the Lord acted the way he did towards his people. But we ought to see that the names which are used here as well, they're also important. We're told that the words statute, law, decree, testimony, rule, they all express the covenant. But the names Israel, Jacob and Joseph, they all refer to God's covenant people. Because Israel, uh, that was the name which the Lord gave to Jacob after Jacob had wrestled all night with the Lord. The Lord renamed (coughs) Jacob, which means deceiver. He renamed him Israel, which means prince of God or God's prince. And as you know, Jacob's son, his beloved son, who was despised and rejected by his brothers, sent into Egypt in slavery, was Joseph. And what we ought to be aware of with all these names is that the covenant promise, it remained unchanged and unbroken from one generation to the next. The Lord had promised, he had covenanted with Abraham, the covenant promise through his seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so the covenant promise, it was as it was with Abraham and it still is, it's to us and to our children. The covenant remains unchanged and unbroken through all the generations from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And it still remains unchanged and unbroken. The covenant promise remains. That's what he's getting at. And what the psalmist is affirming to us with all these these covenantal words, the statutes, the law, decree, testimony, and the covenant generations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, what the psalmist is affirming is the Lord's faithfulness his faithfulness towards his covenant and towards his covenant people and that's something we should cling to more and more because as we know only too well we are unfaithful to the lord and we are unfaithful to his covenant you know we had discipleship explored in the manse last night and we were considering uh, 
week one, considering what it means to be confident in Christ. Not confident in self, but confident in Christ. And one of the questions that was asked in the booklet was, what can we hold on to when we lack confidence in our salvation? What can we hold on to when we lack confidence in our salvation? And you know, the only thing that we can hold on to in order to remind us that our confidence and our standing before God is in Christ, the only thing that we can hold on to is God's covenant with his people. It's nothing of ourselves. It's nothing of what we've achieved or what we've done. It's all of grace. And God's covenant and all the promises of God's word, as, it say, as Paul says, they are yea and amen in Christ. So what can we hold on to when we lack confidence in our salvation? Hold on to God's covenant. Hold on to his covenant of grace, which is signed and sealed in the blood of Christ. And you know, the following question in that discipleship explored, it was, what difference should this confidence make in our lives? And you know, it should make every difference. It should enable us to rejoice in the Lord and the God of our salvation. It should enable us to, to rest in all his promises. It should enable us to, to rest in his covenant. And this is what the psalmist is reminding us here. Because he refers to the exodus from Egypt. And that this great act of redemption, being brought from death to life, from darkness to light, from slavery to freedom, he says it was all an act of the Lord. He acted according to his covenant. And the psalmist, he's speaking to his covenant. He's, well, he's sort of paraphrasing what the Lord would say to his people and reminding them of what he has done for his people. You look at verse 6. He says, this is the Lord speaking. It's in, it's in speech marks. You could say, this is the Lord speaking. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Selah. I relieved you. I delivered you. I answered you. I tested you. The Lord did it. It was the Lord's divine intervention that brought about salvation from bondage and slavery into the newness of life and freedom. He heard the cries of his people. He answered them. He freed them. He rescued them. He brought them out. He secured their salvation. It was nothing of them. It was all of the Lord. He did it. And the same is true of our own salvation that God demonstrated his covenant love and faithfulness towards us in that whilst we were yet sinners, still strangers to grace and to God, Paul says, God has demonstrated his love in that Christ died for us. Christ died for us. This is the wonder of our salvation, that the Lord acted in covenant love and faithfulness towards us, even when we were nowhere near him. And because he did so, there's nothing we can do to make him love us any more than he already does. And there's nothing we can do to make him love us any less. Because of his covenant love and faithfulness towards us, our faithfulness towards him 
and our waywardness from him, it will never change his love for us. Never. This is the wonder of God's covenant. Nothing changes it. He loves unconditionally and always faithfully. And so the psalmist gives to us this beautiful holiday hymn. And in it there's the call to the people, the covenant with the people. Then thirdly, the command for the people. The command for the people. Look at verse 8. He says, Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Now, thinking about this verse, uh, having children or uh, working with children uh, teaches us a lot, not only about them, uh, but also about ourselves. And you know, when we consider the behaviour of children, you can... Well, so readily see our own <coughs> behaviour towards God and the way that we treat God. Except for an example, uh, as a father, I find myself telling David and Phil, uh, day in and day out, that I'm telling them to do as they're told. And sometimes, well, I'm sure I've said it to you before, that it's like talking to a wall because they're not listening. They're, they're, not, they're just doing their own thing. They're doing what they want to do. And I often say to them, boys, are you listening to me? And they say, yes, we're being good boys. We are listening we're doing what we're told. But the truth is they're not listening at all. And then when something goes wrong, they break something or they start fighting or doing whatever boys do. I say to them, did I not just tell you not to do that? You weren't listening. But you know, when I speak to David and Finley, I'm often reminded of what God says to me in his word. And that I'm more like David and Finley than I think. Because I don't listen as I ought to. And I don't do as I've been told. But this father-children relationship, it's clearly presented to us throughout the Bible, especially in the case of the children of Israel, in which they were called the children of Israel, not only because they were descendants of Jacob, but also because God had promised to them, I will be to you a father, you will be to me a son. And as you can expect, being part of the children of Israel, having God as your father, they needed to listen. And this is why the Jewish confession of faith, it began with this, as it says at the beginning of verse 8, the call to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the confession of faith for a Jew, it's called the Shema, which is uh, the Hebrew word for to hear. And for the Orthodox Jew, this Shema, it's the heart of the entire law, the heart of the Torah. It was key to keeping the law of God by confessing there's no other God except the Lord. And this confession of faith, it's still recited every morning and every evening by devout Jews all over the world. In which they confess the words of Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But this confession, it summarized the whole law and it's what characterized the Lord's people as to who they were, and what they were like. Because by asserting twice a day, every day, the children of Israel, or the Israelites, the Jews, they're not only confessing that the Lord is one, 
but they're also confessing that the Lord alone is God. They're asserting that there's no other God besides the Lord. And this is key to their faith by repeating it every day. Because when they were saying it, they were hearing it. They were hearing what the commandment required. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Shema, it was not only this call to hear, but in hearing, it was a call to obedience. The responsibility of obedience. Obedience was required on the basis of what was heard. Just like it is with children. If you listen, you obey. Hearing required obedience. And obedience is not the response of the head. It's the response of the heart. And this is why in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then the Lord says to his people, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And then the Lord says to them, And these words which I'm commanding you today, write them on your heart. And so there's this command to hear. But it was to be responded to by obedience. Obedience was the response of the heart. And that's what we see in these verses. In verses 8 to 10. The psalmist uses the the same phrase in verse 8. Hear, O my people. And he's referring to the Shema. Hear, O Israel. And he's emphasizing that the covenant responsibility of the Lord's, Lord's people is to be obedient to the commandments. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. And that's just a re-emphasis of the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, soul, and strength. But the psalmist makes clear to the Lord's people that They have a a responsibility to love the Lord and live according to his commandments because they have been redeemed by him. He says in verse 10, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And those words, they are the same words that God spoke to the children of Israel when he issued the Ten Commandments. You go to Exodus chapter 20 where all the commandments are set out for us. The first thing the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And because the law was given to the children of Israel, when they were dwelling in tents in the wilderness, it was given from Mount Sinai, in celebration and in commemoration of the Exodus, the law was to be read aloud. Every day during the Feast of Tabernacles. And what the law emphasized is that the Lord's people. They are not their own. But they have been bought at a price. And they have a responsibility to the Lord. I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of bondage. And you know as God's covenant people. We have a responsibility to live our lives. As those who have been bought at a price. Because we're not our own. We can't live the way we please. Because we've been redeemed by precious blood. We've been bought at a price. Therefore we have the responsibility placed upon us as Christians. 
to live godly lives, to be faithful to the Lord, to his word, to his people and to his church. And we need, you know, we need to rediscover our responsibility as Christians today. Because, you know, there's this great emphasis upon individualism and do what I want and live as I please Christianity. And that it's okay to go to this place. It's okay to, to do that. It's okay to miss church. It's okay to skip the prayer meeting. It's okay to neglect your Bible. It's okay to stop praying. But, my friend, the Bible clearly tells us we are not our own. We are not our own. If we're one of the Lord's people, then we've been redeemed from slavery. We've been purchased by precious blood. We've been made new by his grace and we are being kept by his power. We are not our own. We've been bought at a price. Therefore, we are responsible, we are accountable and we are answerable to Jesus Christ and to his church. We are not our own. We are bought at a price. My friend, we have this responsibility to be obedient. As it says here, to listen to the Lord and respond to him in love. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. So we have the responsibility of being committed. Being committed. And that's what we see in the closing verses of this holiday hymn. The commitment of the people. We've seen the call to the people, the call to come and worship, the covenant with the people, it's unchanging, the commandment for the people, teaching us how to live, and then lastly, the commitment of the people. The commitment of the people. If you look at verse 11. He says, But my, be- my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe towards him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. You know, when we read these last few verses, it seems like such a contrast to the beginning of the psalm. At the beginning of the psalm, there was this great call to come and worship the Lord at his feast. But at the end of the psalm, there's this plea to to remain committed to the Lord. And we're told that the reason the children of Israel, we're told that the reason they disobeyed and strayed from the Lord was because they didn't listen. They didn't do as they were told. They wouldn't submit to the Lord's authority. They wouldn't humble themselves before the Lord. They did what was right in their own eyes. And the result, as we have it in verse 12, the Lord says, So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. And you know, that was the story of the children of Israel throughout their wilderness journey. Throughout the years in the wilderness, it was this repetition of disobedience and failure. It was this constant cycle of of rebellion against the Lord and then restoration by the Lord. You read through the book of Judges. They've just entered the promised land. And all it is is a cycle of rebellion and restoration. Rebellion and restoration. Rebellion and restoration. God raises a judge. They're faithful. The judge dies. They rebel. God raises a judge. They're faithful. The judge dies. They rebel. 
constant cycle all the way through. And that's what we see here in these verses. He says, oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe towards him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. The Lord saying, if you had been faithful to me, I would have blessed you greatly. He would have fed them with the finest of the wheat and even honey from the rock. Obedience to the Lord's covenant and his commandments. It would have brought blessing upon blessing. But it didn't happen. They failed so often to be a committed people. And you know, well, we look at ourselves and we see, well, we're so like them. We're just so like them. But you know, when you think about it, it's strange that the psalm would end on this negative tone with such a positive start. And it makes me think, why would the disobedience and failure of the children of Israel, why would that be commemorated and celebrated during the Feast of Tabernacles? And I suppose, well, the answer would be so, so that the following generations would learn from their mistakes, learn from history, so that we don't repeat the mistake and remain committed to the Lord. The mistakes, these failures, these disappointments, they're highlighted so that we will learn to listen to the Lord and take him at his word. But you know, when we consider the history of the Israelites, they never learned from their past. They continue to disobey the Lord and they continue to ignore his word. And this is what I find so interesting about this psalm and its relationship to the Feast of Tabernacles. And I know the time is going, but please let me bring this psalm into the New Testament. Because on the last day of this month-long holiday, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the first day of the holiday, as we said, it was the new moon. It was initiated by the sounding of the horn, the shofar. But the last day was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was known as this, as Hosanna Rabbah, great salvation. And you know, when we come into the New Testament, into John's Gospel, John is always talking about all the feasts. And you come into chapter 7. The Jews are celebrating in chapter 7 of John's Gospel, the Feast of Tabernacles. Or if it's the ESV, it's the Feast of Booths. And they're still rebelling, still rebelling against not only God, but against the word of God, Jesus Christ. And everyone's questioning who Jesus is and if he is the Christ. But John tells us that on the last day of the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, the great day of salvation, Hosanna Rabbah, when there would be this procession of priests, they would come out of the temple, they would go down through the city to the pool of Siloam, and they would go down with all these golden pitchers and they would take water out of the pool of Siloam and they would collect the water and they would go back towards the temple and pour the water on the altar of sacrifice. And as they did this ritual of coming out of the temple and getting the water and going back to the temple, the Jews who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, they would gather in this great procession and they would Follow all the priests singing and rejoicing 
as they commemorated the Exodus and how the Lord had provided water for them in the wilderness from a rock. And yet at the highest point of this ceremony, on the last day, Hosanna Rabbah, the great day of salvation, you read in John 7, Jesus stands up and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But you know, that wasn't the last time Jesus spoke at the Feast of Tabernacles. Because after sundown, on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the priests, they would light lamps in the temple courtyard. And in fact, every evening during the Feast of Tabernacles, so this week-long festival, there were four lamps lit in the temple. And these lamps, they were so big and so bright that when they were lit, it would cast a light over the whole city. And like the water, where it was reminiscent of the rock in the wilderness, where the water gushed out, these lamps, they were to remind the Jews of how the Lord had provided for the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness. The lamps were lit as the reminder of the pillar of cloud that led them by day and the pillar of fire that led them by night. But on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the sun has gone down. This great day, Hosanna Rabbah, great salvation, the close of all the celebrations. They would light only three of the lamps. The last one was to be left unlit. And it was to symbolise that the full salvation of the Lord had not yet come. Because the Messiah had not yet appeared. And it's then, John chapter 8, we go into it. Jesus stands up again, speaks to this rebellious people and says to them, I am the light of the world. He who believes in me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. It's wonderful. Amazing how it all fits together. And what Jesus was saying to the, the rebellious people, to me and you, Commitment to him is the only way to experience this Hosanna Rabbah, this great salvation. So that's Psalm 81. A holiday hymn. The call to the people, the covenant with the people, the commandment for the people, and the commitment of the people. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. O Lord, our gracious God, we give thanks to Thee for the reminder this evening that Thy Word is one that is, has been written from above, written by the hands of men, yes, but inspired by Thy Spirit. We marvel, Lord, how it all fits together and that it speaks to us so clearly of the Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us. Help us, Lord, to see this Word as sharper than any two-edged sword, one that guides us, one that pricks our conscience, one that teaches us. And help us, Lord, to submit ourselves to it, not only the written word, but also the eternal word that was made flesh. Help us to trust in Jesus more and more. Help us to love him more deeply, to follow him more closely, to walk with him more faithfully. Oh, bless us, Lord, we pray as thy people. Encourage us from thy truth.
Bind us together, we pray, for we know that without thee we can do nothing, but with thee all things are possible. Keep us, Lord, for we cannot keep ourselves. Remember us, we ask thee. Remember our homes and our families. Remember our loved ones, we pray, and all that they too would come to know of this great salvation. Go before us, Lord, we ask thee. Do us good, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We shall conclude by singing in that psalm, Psalm 81. Psalm 81, page 334, a Scottish Psalter. And we're going to sing from the beginning down to the verse marked 8. Psalm 81, page 334, from the beginning. Sing loud to God our strength, with joy to Jacob's God to sing. Take up a psalm, the pleasant harp, timbrel and psaltery bring. Blow trumpets at new moon. What day or feast appointed is for charge to Israel and a law of Jacob's God was this. Down to the verse marked 8, to God's praise. Yeah.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.